All right, our last topic, well, mostly our last topic, I guess, uh, chapter 15 on sexual violence or sexual victimization um, uh, is um, sexual abuse of children. Now, we've actually talked a little bit about this before when we talked about um, uh, perpetrators of abuse on children when we looked at um, uh, pedophiles under our um, discussion of paraphilias. Um, here our emphasis is a little bit more on the victim. Uh, we do talk, we'll talk a little bit, I guess I have a few slides on um, on uh, perpetrators, but um, uh, more on the effects on children. Um, <clears throat> let's see, uh, like we saw with rape statistics, it can be hard to um, make sense sometimes out of uh, statistics on um, incidents and prevalence of sexual abuse of children because um, because here uh, people will often use different definitions. Um, and what that comes down to often is whether or not physical contact was involved or not. Uh, some definitions of sexual abuse of children um, uh, would would only count things that involve physical contact and some wouldn't, uh, such as showing, um, uh, exposing oneself to a child or showing a child pornography or something like that. Whereas, you know, some definitions would include that. And so, um, that's one of the major differences. Um, and so, um, so this next statistic, I'm on, sorry, I'm on slide number 38, uh, overall prevalence of severe child sexual abuse. What they mean by severe is that does involve some physical contact. Um, uh, and, um, and so uh, it's estimated that 16.8% uh, of females are victims of severe sex, uh, child sex abuse, 7.9% uh, for males. Um, uh, and again, as we saw with our... Um, uh, identification for pedophilia. Um, the, um, the term children is generally going to be referring in this context to people 13 years, uh, or younger than 13 years old, right? Now, um, if we go to slide number 39, uh, at first glance, these statistics may be a little bit misleading because what this is, is statistics of children who are sexually abused, uh, not of all children. Um, and so, um, <clears throat> uh, so, uh, of girls who are sexually abused, 10% involves oral sex. Of boys who are sexually abused, 30% of that includes oral sex, right? So it's not 30% of boys overall, but 30% of boys who were abused, 10% of girls who were abused. So, so at first glance, these statistics may seem higher than they really are, right? Um, but this is just of uh, children who have been sexually abused. Um, uh, we'll look a little bit later on, um, I think I have this laid out more clearly in, in a later slide, about the effects on, on children um, uh, from, um, from the type of abuse, this, the long-term severity of the, the abuse, um, and some other kinds of factors that are predictive of how likely it is the child's going to be able to be okay or have problems as a result of it. If we look a little bit at um, on slide 40 about um, who molests children, uh, remember when um, when we talked about uh, pedophilia in the past, I made a distinction between preference molesters and situational molesters. And generally speaking, what we think of as a pedophile is, um, is in this context who we would call a preference molester. That is somebody whose preferred mode of sexual interaction would be with children. They're relatively uninterested in adult partners. Um, they, um, they tend to uh, think, they tend to really believe in their heart of hearts that, um, that 
does sex with children is a good thing and that it helps the child or or something like that in some ways. Um, <clears throat> whereas on the other hand, situational molesters are uh, primarily interested in adults and tend to view their urges towards children as abnormal. So they will have urges towards um, children. They, they try to counteract that. They try to um, um, uh, resist it. And they're liable to molest in times of stress when they're drunk or when a, um, when a situation is there and presents itself, right? So they're not going to generally going to be going out looking for um, victims, uh, but they are liable to molest children um, uh, opportunistically, I guess. Um, let's see. Uh, we've looked at the idea before that, um, that most of the time when children are uh, sexually molested, um, it's often going to be by someone who knows the child previously, somebody who's um, uh, a relative or a trusted um, uh, friend of the family or something like that. Um, it does seem that, um, that most people who molest children want to believe that the child is okay with it. And so they kind of do a, um, uh, a grooming procedure sometimes and um, uh, of the child, sort of almost like a, uh, a gradual seduction of the child to get the child's trust and um, uh, things like that. And they generally don't want to use force. Now, it's not clear necessarily if that's because if a child is forced, then the child is more likely to recognize that this was wrong and reported. Um, but it does seem that, um, that in general, uh, uh, child molesters usually are not in the habit of using a lot of uh, physical force. There is a subset of preference molesters who are similar to sadistic uh, rapists uh, who do a lot of um, uh, uh, a lot of physical force and aggression and even murder uh, in, um, uh, in, uh, as part of their uh, sexual arousal. Fortunately, that's a fairly small number. Um, uh, let's see, um, if we look at uh, slide 41, um, um, many, um, many males who molest little boys don't consider themselves homosexual, right? Um, this is, this is a, this is a, an idea that gets really messed up sometimes in, um, in talking about issues of, well, even issues of, um, of sexual orientation, um, because a lot of times, and I may have mentioned this before, um, but a lot of times when, um, when people in the general public see a male person, uh, sexually abuse a boy, they assume that that male adult is homosexual. And so, um, so that has led some people to argue that homosexuals are more likely to sexually abuse children. However, that person often doesn't see themselves as homosexual and tend to have, uh, uh, attractions to other sex people, in that case it would be women, um, uh, in, um, uh, in their adult kinds of relationships. Um, so um, uh, molesters tend to have a preference as far as uh, the, the sex of their victim. They'll prefer to molest little boys or little girls, but that doesn't necessarily correlate um, with their preference for adult partners. Um, many people who uh, sexually molest children are um, kind of low in social skills, uh, shy, passive, unassertive, um, <clears throat> and um, uh, let's see. Um, we have, if we go to slide 42, um, we have seen, um, it seems like uh, there's been an uptick in uh, female pe perpetrators of child sexual abuse um, in the last few years, and that there are often news stories 
of um, often young teacher, young female teachers having sex with high school aged uh, people. Um, <clears throat> uh, and remember that um, that if they're having sex with people who are pubescent or post pubescent, that's not exactly pedophilia. It's kind of a different pattern, um, and that's what's described at the bottom of slide number forty two. Um, if they're abusing, if adult women abusing teenage boys uh, tend to fit a pattern of being, um, you know, seeking power and thrills and want to be. Uh, want to be um, adored uh, in a way and feeling lonely uh, and um, uh, so it's a different kind of pattern that's uh, the the uh, the medical psychological term for that is hebephilia. Um, it is still, of course, illegal, usually for more than one reason, because usually there are specific laws against teachers, particularly having sex with students, not only the fact that the, that the students are, you know, under the age of consent. Um, <clears throat> uh, victims do often suffer long-term problems. This is a kind of abuse that, um, that it seems like people sometimes in the general public are liable to write off. Um, and, and, you know, uh, adult men say stuff like, oh, I wish she was my teacher, you know, that kind of stuff. But, um, but actually, uh, uh, boys who are abused this way um, often do serve, uh, suffer some long-term problems as a result of it. Um, uh, let's see. Um, uh, but females do sexually abuse children as well, not just uh, prepubescent. And so going up to the top of this slide, um, <clears throat> uh, 25% of child sexual abuse victims have been abused by females, um, and uh, females, when they offend, are more likely to uh, offend against boys than girls. Okay, here we go. Number uh, slide number forty-three. Um, <clears throat> there's some good and some bad news here as far as the effects of abuse on children. Um, <clears throat> about um, about a third of kids who have been sexually abused show no problems from it, no detectable problems. That's good, right? That, um, that, um, that shows some resilience of children. In, in fact, uh, that kids, even in the face of um, uh, stressors like that, can still end up doing pretty well. Um, kids are, can be pretty resilient, which is amazing and it's good. Um, <clears throat> about um, uh, uh, another fraction have some subclinical symptoms, uh, so some difficulties in relationships, some difficulties with depression or anxiety, but not necessarily diagnosable. But at least half of uh, kids who are sexually abused are going to have some major psychiatric symptoms, often post-traumatic stress disorder or depression or some form of anxiety. Uh, so this often does um, uh, predict later kinds of problems. Um, now, if you go to slide number 44, uh, there's been some research that looks at, um, you know, what kinds of situational factors or even relationship factors about the abuse and the abuser might um, predict better or worse recovery for the child. And so um, here's a list of things phrased in terms of, you know, that there tends to be greater harm, so predictive of more long-term problems in children, if, first of all, if the abuse was frequent or long-lasting. That's much more likely to cause harm than if the abuse was a single incident, uh, or if it was even a number of sort of single isolated incidents, but if it was frequent or long lasting, if it did involve force or threats, that's also predictive of, uh, of greater problems of functioning of the child. If it involved penetration, uh, 
uh, if it involved um, uh, abuse at the hands of a family member, particularly a father or stepfather, that's um, that's predictive of uh, worse outcomes. And um, and also, if the um, if the mother knew about the uh, abuse and didn't intervene or didn't do anything to help. Maybe she was afraid of the abuser herself. Maybe she um, thought the abuse was okay. I don't know, whatever, whatever the situation was. Um, uh, if the child perceives that mom knew about this and didn't help me, that's often predictive of um, uh, later problems as well. Um, uh, slide number 45 seems a little bit out of place to me. Uh, your textbook does a little thing on recovered memory syndrome or false memory syndrome. Um, and uh, I don't know, you know, this is, this is an important topic, but I'm not sure how much it really fits in here. Essentially what's going on is that um, uh, the rule of thumb for um, reports of child sex abuse used to be children don't lie, that if children report uh, abuse or sex abuse, that children wouldn't be lying about those things, and we just have to accept their word at face value. Um, we now know, within the last 20, 25 years, we now know that while children might not necessarily deliberately lie, uh, um, they're not very good uh, at, um, they're not very good eyewitnesses. Uh, they're, um, <clears throat> Their memories can become contaminated by later stuff, uh, and we know from how memory works that it's possible for people to experience memory illusions, where they remember things as if they were true, even though they're not really. Um, yeah, this is actually a fascinating topic, and I'd love to tell you more about it. Um, but um, but essentially, what it comes down to is that um, this is really just a reminder of since we know that it is possible for people to have. Um, uh, memory illusions that, you know, meaning that they feel like the memory is true, even though it's not later, then we can't just take uh, reports at, at, at face value. We have to be able to go back and look for corroborating evidence. Um, this is kind of a change in the way that, um, that investigations of uh, uh, child sex abuse have occurred. And, and actually one of the landmark cases was one in North Carolina, um, uh, some years ago, it would have been in, I don't know, 1995 or something like that. Anyway, um, uh, so uh, it is possible. The, um, the, the really sort of um, dark thing about this, too, is that when people do have memory illusions, um, they can feel the same way as if those memories were real. Um, and, um, and it's happened that, um, that people have recovered, and I do air quotes here, if you could see me, I'm doing air quotes, have recovered some memories in the course of psychotherapy uh, that turned out to later not be true at all. And so they were false memories, um, but, they, but the people suffered as a result of uh, just as if that was real, right? Um, <clears throat> so this is something we've got to be very careful about. Um, let's see, uh, next, uh, next topic is incest. Um, uh, just a few things about incest. Uh, incest is probably more common than it's believed to be, um, uh, than it's reported. Uh, more common kinds of incests are among siblings. Um, so brother-sister incest and brother-brother incest, uh, seem to be the most common, um, but they're not reported very much. Uh, uh, it would often be parents or family members who would find out about this and they would deal with it within the house. Um, and, and, uh, you know, not report it to anybody. Nobody knows about it. Um, uh, Parent-child incest is um, uh, is more likely to be reported, uh, and um, overall, the most likely pattern of reaching the level of um, uh, in, 
uh, involvement of the law or, or arrest of somebody is going to be a stepfather and daughter or possibly a father-daughter. Um, let's see. Again, um, if the, um, uh, the mother knew about this and didn't do anything about it or something like that, uh, that's often predictive of more problems in recovery, right? If, if mom uh, allowed this to happen to me, um, in a sense, right? Um, notice, again, that's not necessarily, uh, mom might have been afraid of dad as well, uh, or other kinds of things, but that is predictive of uh, more problems for the, um, uh, for the daughter later on. Um, let's see, uh, incest is an interesting topic anthropologically, you know, um, uh, is that, um, something that's built into us that we tend to, uh, want to avoid, um, sexual contact with close family members. People have purported that there may be some even genetic mechanisms that would be involved there. Um, uh, incest is generally taboo, um, in most cultures, uh, particularly for, uh, first degree relatives. Uh, however, for even second degree relatives, it's much, um, much less of a, um, of a clear rule, uh, across cultures. Um, many cultures incest with second degree relatives, which would be, um, cousins, uh, aunts and uncles, whatever is, um, uh, is not seen as a problem necessarily, right? Uh, let's see, slide number 47, um, prosecution of sex offenders. Um, <clears throat> uh, so this is not just uh, referring to um, stuff that I've talked about in this segment related to uh, child uh, abuse, uh, child sex abuse, but also, you know, kind of summing up a lot of things from um, overall topics here. So uh, looking at um, rapists and stuff like that too. Um, <clears throat> there are in place uh, rape shield laws to protect victims. Um, rape shield laws are in a, they're important to know about because one of the things that I think um, people are afraid of when they're faced with the possibility of reporting a rape, I've been raped, do I report it or not, um, is, um, is there, uh, they may be afraid that they're going to themselves be opened up to scrutiny. Um, and, uh, and there was a time when, um, when the victim's previous sexual behaviors would be admissible in court, right? Uh, so even did you previously have uh, consensual sex with this assailant uh, was admissible in court. Now that's not admissible in court. Even if you've had a previous sexual um, uh, uh, involvement with the assailant and that was cons and the previous uh, uh, sex was consensual. Uh, that doesn't mean anything for the consent this time, right? And so, um, you know, uh, there were there had been attempts in the past to paint victims as um, sexually promiscuous or sexual. Um, uh, um, uh, I don't know, sexually aggressive, I guess, themselves. Um, and uh, rape shield laws protect victims against that. So that so all that kind of information is not admissible, right? Um, uh, there is a special, um, there have been in uh, courts, uh, the allowance of a special carve out for videotape testimonies. Um, videotape take testimony, um, sometimes allowed by child victims. This is probably a bigger deal than you might realize at first. Um, one of the basic, um, one of the basic rights that you have in the United States when you're ac accused of a crime is to face your accuser, right? You have the right to face your accuser. Um, and, and essentially what they're saying here is that the potential damage to the accused, 
I'm, I'm sorry, to the victim, um, is so strong uh, that um, uh, that um, they'll allow for child victims uh, to present videotape testimony, um, and um, that's a pretty big deal, I think, um, from a legal standpoint. Um, and it does allow for you know the child to not have to go to court and not have to see the person and stuff like that, right? Uh, let's see. Um, there are uh, sexual predator laws that um, that allow offenders to be held beyond their terms if they're likely to reoffend. Um, this is um, this is important and controversial. Um, you know that um, often when people well, the next thing is the sex offender registry um, <clears throat> that was instituted uh, under. Megan's Law, I don't know if anybody calls it that anymore, but uh, in 1996, um, the National Sex Offender Registry, um, that people will have to register, and this is a publicly available uh, registry. Um, and then there are often, even after the person, the sex offender, has done their time and been released from uh, prison, they may still have other kinds of conditions placed on them as far as, uh, you know, where they can live. They can't live in certain areas close to uh, potential child victims like schools or churches, I think, um, or other kinds of things like that. And um, and there are some places in the country where that's become uh, very difficult uh, for folks to manage, that there's almost no place for... Um, uh, sex offenders to live, um, and um, you know that's not within a certain distance of place. And and people have, uh, I've questioned whether or not that's really um, uh, just uh, to have somebody essentially paying for their crime even long after they've finished their sentence, right? Um, <clears throat> uh, we do know um, from a psychological perspective, we do know that sexual offenders are likely to reoffend. Uh, so there is a fairly high risk of recidivism here, perhaps more than for some other kinds of crime. So it may be that that exception is warranted here, right? But just know that that's, um, that's kind of a um, uh, controversial sort of thing. Um, my last slide has to do with treatment. Um, uh, treatment for uh, rapists. Um, um, uh, I don't know. Um, there are uh, uh, treatment programs for sex offenders, um, but usually these are um, for folks who are already incarcerated or in a halfway house or something like that. And a lot of times a person may be agreeing to this kind of treatment because they think it's going to make them look better in the eyes of the judge or the parole board or their family or something else, right? And may not be completely invested in it. Um, that may be one of the reasons why, like we saw for um, for pedophiles before, that or for yeah, mostly pedophiles, but um, that um, the treatment is often not particularly successful. Uh, here's a place where um, where people may suggest using uh, anti-androgen treatment, which is uh, chemical castration. I believe we talked about that when we looked at um, uh, treatment for pedophiles and other sex offenders in a previous chapter. Um, and uh, for, um, for victims of um, uh, rape or molestation, um, that's often going to involve some treatment. Remember, more than 50% are liable to have you know, diagnosable psychiatric symptoms. And um, and one of the diagnoses that's often liable to show up here is post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, so, um, uh, so treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, other kinds of treatment interventions, uh, 
uh, going along there as well. Um, folks who are um, sexually molested, um, and and I don't know, it seems to me that particularly when children are sexually molested, um, they learn some kind of, they learn some very problematic things early on about themselves and about other people. Um, you know, children who are sexually molested will sometimes sort of internalize the lesson that I'm only good for what I can do for somebody else as far as giving them some pleasure or something like that. And, um, and so they're at risk then for, um, for having uh, uh, compulsive sexual behaviors, uh, drug and alcohol behaviors, uh, anxiety, a lot of different kinds of things later on, uh, difficulty in relationships. Um, so, um, <clears throat> uh, so a lot of kinds of treatment interventions often going to be involved there, you know, even beyond treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay, I think that'll wrap it up for, um, uh, for chapter 15.